Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of movie scores that are considered worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us Alan Silvestri's score to the 1985 hit comedy adventure sci-fi time travel movie, Back to the Future. Back to the Future was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. It was produced by Neil Canton and Bob Gale, as well as executive produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, and Steven Spielberg. And it was directed by Robert Zemeckis. John, quickly sum up Back to the Future. I already have. (laughs) It's a time travel movie. Teenage kid in 1985 uh, goes back in time to 1955 and winds up having to make sure his parents fall in love so that he can get back to the present, uh, which is the future in the past. Got it? Yeah. The kid, Marty McFly, is played by Michael J. Fox. His parents are played by Leah Thompson and Crispin Glover. The scientist who invents the time machine, Dr. Emmett Brown, is played by Christopher Lloyd. The school bully is played by Thomas F. Wilson, and that's Back to the Future. So will 1955 Doc help 1985 Marty get back to 1985? Will they run into versions of themselves from different years that we'll find out about in subsequent movies, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit? Yes. Yes. Okay, thanks. Good enough? Good enough. So, John, how do you feel about the beginning of this movie? Oh, you mean all the clocks? It begins with nothing but clocks. Yeah. But the first major piece of action is that Marty McFly plugs into a a huge amplifier and blows himself across the room with a guitar chord, which I guess it's there to establish that... uh, That he's a cool guy. (laughs) Is that a cool thing to do? It sure is. Uh, (laughs) The more electric your electric guitar is, the better is my understanding. I mean, my question about that sequence is he's on the phone with Doc and he says... All the clocks are 25 minutes slow. My experiment worked. His experiment was to set his clocks wrong? What do you think, John? Do you need me to explain this to you? Whenever the daylight savings time changes, I set my watch and I go, my experiment worked. It did, yeah. Yeah. Now, I assume that it's part of his time experiments because what he's working on, though he doesn't tell it to Marty over the phone, is a time machine. You realize this, right? Probably he put each of those clocks, he plugged them directly into the flux capacitor and uh, slowed them down somehow. I saw it said that uh, this movie probably starts with clocks as homage to the 1960 H.G. Wells adaptation, The Time Machine, which begins with uh, a lot of different clocks floating through a void, just ticking. Hmm. Sounds plausible. Did you notice the one clock that has the little... uh... Harold Lloyd hanging off of the minute hand? Yes, I did. It's center screen. <laughs> when I noticed that the first time, I thought, ha-ha. Because it's Harold Lloyd or because they restaged that at the end of the movie? Yeah, because it's the foreshadowing of Doc hanging off of the clock. That's right. No music. No music is playing during... Yes, there's no music. There's no main title for this. We cheated just now. We usually play the first piece of music you hear in the movie, but that wouldn't have been appropriate here because there's no music at the beginning to set the scene. The first bit of score isn't until 18 and a half minutes into the movie. In fact, it's uh, 
you know, cues in a film score are often numbered according to the reel of film. Reel is about 10 minutes, right? Something like that, yeah. It, you know, it can vary a little. But, uh, you know, the third cue on reel one would be called 1M3 for first reel, music, start three. And the first bit of score in this movie is 3M1. There's not any score until the third reel. Yeah, well, what there is is Huey Lewis. Yeah. So let's start off this episode by listening to The Power of Love. It's a curious thing. It is a curious thing. It's odd that this is the theme song for this movie, isn't it? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's very fitting because this really feels like 1985. You know, I, I think it is even more dated than they could have hoped it would be when they picked it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It establishes the era because it is the era's idea about what you put in a movie, a song like this. Yeah, there were so many movies in this era where a cool high school kid does some cool stuff at his high school and that sets the scene. And this movie does that for 15 minutes and then starts a totally different type of movie. This song is playing and he has this, you know, little uh, flirty bit with his girlfriend, Jennifer, and she writes, I love you on a piece of paper. And he looks at it and then the song comes back in from the interlude with That's the Power of Love, the title lyric. And I, I thought, oh, that's the power of love. That's the power of love, even though she gave him an obviously fake phone number. So how much can she really love him? I was listening to these lyrics, and there's strangely sort of an abstract ode to love itself. It's a very kind of renaissance-y choice for... (laughs) The lyrics are like, it can make a hawk into a dove, and you need no wealth nor fame. It's totally, you know, Elizabethan. I wouldn't have thought of that. I mean, what's remarkable about this movie, to go back to what you were saying about what kind of movie even is it, it starts out with, yeah, a kid in high school and the power of love, but then that kid, the protagonist of the movie does not have a love story in the movie. Yeah, because he's already got a girlfriend. He's set. She even loves him when his band doesn't get picked in the Battle of the Bands because they're too darn loud. (laughs) The scene where they're talking about that, Marty does, like, the absolute iconic move that is today celebrated in everybody's favorite meme of the guy turning away from his girlfriend to look at the other girl. (laughs) He does. He does. He's he's the original distracted boyfriend. We're looking at that exact image, uh, you know, from the reverse angle, but it's precisely that. But Jennifer doesn't make that aghast face. She just turns his head back. She's very level. She's there giving him good advice about how he can't be so afraid of rejection that he doesn't pursue his dreams. Yeah, it establishes that this is a movie about a cool high school kid who he uh, just needs to have the right attitude so his band can get ahead and someday he's going to have a truck that he really wants, but he, he can't afford the truck. And these are his problems. All right, so what are you getting at, Andy? <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, uh, we're stalling here. What, you're trying to say that this movie is other than it is or appears or thinks it is? I actually don't have a strong point to make here other than just that it's odd that a movie that has such an unusual mix of genre elements in it is willing to spend, as you said, two reels not really (laughs) being on task yet. And of course, later we find out we needed all of that setup because the whole movie is about setup and payoff and they needed to do 18 minutes of setup so that we could get a lot of payoffs later. But the movie really tries to say, hey, this is just like all these other 80s movies that you've seen. And then the score has to sort of wake up at uh, the 20-minute mark and say, 
okay, but this is what you're really watching, and uh, it's what you've been watching all along, uh, and it's great, and you love it. And uh, how well do you think he pulls that off? I think he does that very well. I think it it comes (laughs) off. All right, so let's listen to the first bit of score music in the movie. Marty has been mysteriously told to come to the mall parking lot in the middle of the night, and Doc backs up the truck and lowers the gate and outbacks the DeLorean. Through mist. The music is eerie, unearthly, mystery, magic. The door of the supernatural is being opened on this movie, right? The very first musical sound in the score is the sound of rubbing a gong with a super ball, which is, you know, is one of these percussion player techniques where you take this rubbery thing and it squeeches and squelches its way around the metal gong, gives this very odd sound, and the strings are playing these dissonant shimmers on top of it. The first notes that you can hear distinctly are these two quick little shimmery arpeggios. These stacking harps and pianos and electric pianos and a celeste, all these like magic bell sounds. Right. It's a haze and a mist, and then out of it emerges, just like the car is emerging out of this mist, this horn call. which is going to be the basis of everything that comes. And then some low brass building up the tension. To a cutoff, and then that's it. And that's a very quick little cue that you don't really listen to. It just kind of plants a flag and subconsciously you have a new sense of what kind of movie you're watching. It's done so smoothly and gracefully. It turns the movie essentially on a dime and you don't notice at all. There's a lot of different kinds of craft there, but the spotting is also part of the craft. Boy, the spotting in this movie. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I definitely wanted to make a point of this. He is so careful about where he goes and what he accents. I agree with what you said about how this first cue introducing the DeLorean is perfectly mood setting and just slips in there and subtly shifts what you're expecting out of the movie. To me, though, the most like arresting, aha, okay, here's how I have to watch this movie moment is right at the beginning of the next cue. Doc gets the DeLorean out of the truck. He remote control drives the car to the other end of the parking lot. They stand in front of it as he accelerates up to 88 miles an hour and they stand right in the way of it. And all of this, there's no music. This is the first time that we see the car do its thing. The first time we see the flux capacitor fire up and there's no music for this because we don't quite know what this means, where it's going. It would be premature to tell you in the music. Instead, the music waits for all of this to happen. The fire tracks go through their feet as the car disappears in time. The music only now comes in on Doc's reaction. He looks down at his remote control where it says 88 miles an hour. The music goes on Christopher Lloyd's rubber-faced take to the speedometer that he's looking at. Instead of scoring the incredible science fiction visual effects that we just saw, instead he scores the whoa, that just happened moment of reaction on the person's face. 
And I feel like that's such a key decision to help the audience know that, oh, it's the going woe about this that is being packaged for me here. You know, it goes voom into that look, and then it goes voom again into him doing his little dance of celebration. You know, it's a little bit cartoonish. There's no doubt that this score has a little bit of cartoon Mickey Mousing in both its spotting and its orchestration and its sound and its twinkle. More than a little bit. I mean, so much of it is scored not just like a cartoon, but as brashly as possible like a cartoon. Yeah. Huge, huge exaggerated hits on things. Not just hits, but like winks and twinkles and flips and thwops. Absolutely. And these moments when it builds up to a huge Cord to accentuate whatever the line is that comes next. And then leaves a hole, sure. Yeah, it leaves a little hole for comic effect. So it goes. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Part of the comedy of this movie that it gets so right is that if they make the sci-fi stuff actually mind-blowing and thrilling, then the drop down to the befuddled comic response to that becomes funnier and more satisfying. And the music plays that absolutely to the hilt. It's willing to exaggerate things just to the absolute orchestral maximum that they can be exaggerated so that then when Marty goes, whoa, right afterwards, it sounds more comic. And that's just throughout the movie Silvestri will go completely to a cartoon place and yet the miracle of this score to me is the movie doesn't feel frivolous and weightless like a cartoon the music manages to be over the top that way without you ever going well this is just some silly stuff I don't care The music is committing to its job so hard. It has a mission. It is going to, yeah, do both of those things that you said. It's going to play every take and whoosh that it can find on screen. But it also, you know, has to convey like serious stakes and high adventure. It is so committed to doing both of them that it will just swerve from one to the next at the drop of every single hat every three seconds of the movie. It will fade away into cartoony underbed business at any instant it wants to. Well, that cartoony underbed business is itself kind of an incredible choice. He scores dialogue scenes. He scores expository, you know, Doc Brown is explaining the time machine. Yeah. He scores these scenes with absolutely manic... Looney Tunes music. It is Looney Tunes. Like, you know, when he's looking at the flyer about the lightning strike, it's absolutely Looney Tunes. Yeah, I wrote Marvin the Martian music. Sure, yeah. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor. This music comes back so many times. So much of the score is made of this material, almost exactly the same. Where the hell are they? The appropriate question is, when the hell are There's they? There's plinky-tunky, wonka-wonka, plunka-dunka. It's sort of Doc's motif, but it's not really a motif. It's just kind of a material that he can go to. Sylvester said in some liner notes that he thinks of that music as the synapses in Doc's brain firing, which is nice. Sure. It's certainly like mad scientist energy. Yeah, it sounds sciency. It sounds like there's, you know, sparks and fips and flurps zipping around. I like that image. Yeah, I like it too. 
But I think that in terms of the effect of, you know, what point of view the music is representing, I have never experienced it as coming from Doc. It feels like the storytelling, the world and the audience experience is infused with this thrill of craziness. When I was a kid, I loved anything that was like zany and crazy energy. That's the best kind. And that's, I think, why <laughs> kids like cartoons and why cartoons are scored that way. And somehow this movie tells a story in that energy and you take the story seriously even as you're in that crazy cartoon headspace. Yeah, you know, looking over this score carefully, following it along, I was a little surprised to realize how much it depends on these cartoony effects and pitched percussion instruments. Yeah, yeah. High bells and celestes and stuff like that that make these twinkle. You know, there's so many little twinkles, diddly diddly, every which way. Yeah, there's magic and there's craziness. Those are very important elements here. The scene where, you know, he's back in time and he's finally convinced 1955 Doc that uh, he is who he says he is and that there's a time machine that he's going to invent in 30 years. And he takes him to where he's hidden the DeLorean. Again, there's this kind of spooky bed with some dissonant shivering strings. You know, every now and again, the harps and the glockenspiels and virophones and celestes are going to just twinkle. There's twinkles every which way you go. While I was watching that scene... I got a, a, a notification on my phone like this. Buda bink. And it took me a second to parse where I was hearing what. Buda bink is, a, is an important motif in this movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, they get a lot of notifications over the course <laughs> of the three movies. I wanted to play, we have one scene where it was scored with some of this music and then it was taken out so we can actually play the audio without it and with it. Ah. And you can hear this fascinating tonal transformation that this music creates by giving that sense of manic comic urgency to anything. This is the scene when Doc and Marty are in the high school. Doc says, oh no, this is worse than we thought. Your mother is infatuated with you. Apparently your mother is amorously infatuated with you instead of your father. Which is the plot of this movie. Let's just keep going. And Marty says, oh, that's heavy. And then they see the poster and he says, oh, you've just got to get them to go to this rhythmic ceremonial ritual, the dance at the end of the week. Why are things so heavy in the future? Is there a problem with the Earth's gravitational pull? This is a scene that plays in the, the finished movie just as dialogue, and it plays fine, and we're invested enough at this point that we're perfectly willing to hear them discuss this stuff, but there is a cue that goes under it, and it's that music. Isn't he a dreamboat? Doc, you didn't even look at him. This is more serious than I thought. Apparently your mother is amorously infatuated with you instead of your father. Whoa, wait, wait a minute, Doc. Are you trying to tell me that my mother has got the hots for me? Precisely. Whoa, this is heavy. And as soon as you hear it, you go, oh, sure, it could have been one of these, too. Uh-huh. Anything in Back to the Future could have been a one of these. <laughs> because Back to the Future as a whole is a one of these. A one of these? You mean a cartoon? <laughs> well, a very special kind of cartoon that you aren't it's a rhythmic dismissing. Ceremonial ritual mm-hmm. coming up. Of course, the enchantment under the sea dance. They're supposed to go to this. That's where they kiss for the first time. All right, kid. You stick to your father like blue and make sure he takes you to that dance. George, buddy. 
it's a cartoon, but it somehow sidesteps the liabilities of being a cartoon. You know, you don't roll your eyes at the improbabilities here. You just love them. At least I do. Well, I really think it comes down, at least partially, to Silvestri's nimbleness in being able to pull meaningful emotional moments out of this manic cartoon texture kind of whenever he wants to. Like when Doc gets shot by the Libyans before Marty jumps back in time. He gets shot and there's this very affecting romantic big string line as Marty reacts to it and yells, No! It almost put me in mind of, you know, the big romantic statement of Princess Leia's theme when Luke sees Obi-Wan get killed. <laughs> I think that's definitely out of the same playbook, and it just kind of flares up like a solar flare. And then it sinks back into the manic texture. And then I really like this moment in this queue that I was just talking about where they go and discover the DeLorean where Marty's hidden it and then Doc sees for the first time this thing that he is going to have built. And he says, I finally invent something that works. And again, this emotional line, this kind of broadening feeling suddenly stretches out. <laughs> if you pay attention to it, it's quite meaningful. I finally invent something that works. Here's a satisfaction that I can anticipate having and also have for myself right now. And the music is just so nimbly able to get to that spot and go wherever it needs to go. That's interesting, your take on that little gesture as being Doc being moved. I hear that as part of an element in this score where there are ominous horn calls and trumpet calls and kind of heralds of fate or irony or some kind of God's eye view of the story. Like these little pinch figures that you hear a few times. Da-da, da-da. Uh-huh. Or when Marty is walking through the town square and mm -hmm. you hear kind of a lone trumpet playing, you know, here's the clock tower that you knew in the future and it really sinks in that he's in the past. The muted trumpet on the main motif. Da, 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 yeah. There are a lot of these gestures that have a foreboding sci-fi Twilight Zone, Planet of the Apes kind of voice in them that once he's established that that kind of point of view is in this score, a lot of little things he does kind of get the energy of that. And at that moment when Doc sees his own future car, I feel a little like there's this... Uh, huh. Does it not feel that way to you? I guess I see what you're saying because it's reminiscent of like the portentous figure that he goes to like when Marty goes in 1955 to what is not yet his street where he lives. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right that this moment with Doc seeing the car is reminiscent of that, but I was really affected by it in this spot. It felt emotional to me. Well, it's both. I mean, that's another miracle of the score is that even in its sci-fi identity and that shot when Marty goes and sees the Lion Estates where they're just breaking ground and there's mm -hmm. no houses there yet. And it's a big crane shot that pulls back and shows him sort of reckoning with it, reckoning with it small against this landscape. And, you know, he's right. the little guy and these bigger forces than him are up against him time in the future and all of that. 
even when it goes to that science fiction perspective of making the characters helpless in the face of larger forces, it is plugged into the emotions. As you say, the nimble jumping from one to another and sort of integrating them all into each other, the perspective that makes the characters small, and also the perspective that makes the characters' emotions big, and the perspective that makes the characters' actions wacky hijinks, they're all so closely musically tied together that you start to feel them as identified with each other, which is, uh, maybe that's the magic of the movie. It's because they're all packaged with equivalent earnestness. I think that's right. The score is earnest throughout. There's yeah. no point at which it belittles the material. Right. Even when it's being wacky and goofy and plinky plunky, blah, 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 blah. it's not because what you're looking at isn't important or right. It's because it's committed that hard to steering you to have fun with everything. Yeah. You know, when we were talking about Batman and I was saying Danny Elfman, there's an exuberance in his use of the orchestra that I think is sincere. Danny Elfman's name definitely kept crossing my mind as I was looking at this score. Well, I was just going to connect it to, I think that Alan Silvestri, probably throughout his career, but especially at this point when he was just starting out as a large orchestra film composer, mm -hmm. there's a thrill and an exuberance in getting to do all this large orchestra stuff that I think is real for him and comes through in the music. It definitely comes through. Yeah, I think Alan Silvestri is thrilled to have been given this opportunity, both as a career opportunity, but as a musical opportunity. His career up to this point had not been about huge scores like this. He came up, I mean, he was like a pop drummer and guitarist and then he got gigs doing tv shows and his big gig for a long time was that he scored the show chips oh right california highway patrol show and that all sounded like disco pop scoring i mean very again nimble and clearly always had talent but you know listen to this this has nothing to do with that future maybe and then his big movie prior to this Robert Zemeckis's big movie prior to this that started their very long collaboration was Romancing the Stone, which uh, had a score that sounded like this. Not a large orchestra score. And actually, the story is that Steven Spielberg, the executive producer of Back to the Future, and basically... The presenter, indeed, of it. The presenter. Steven Spielberg presents this movie to you, and don't you forget it. It's the first thing you need to think about. But he's entitled. He made it happen, and he basically shepherded Robert Zemeckis' career into existence. The story is that he had had reservations about the score to Romancing the Stone, which was very of its time and has dated, certainly. And I think Spielberg's instinct about this may have been right, that a movie, you know, adventure in the jungle, they could have gone for an orchestral score and gotten a longer life and a bigger impact out of it. And so when he heard that Zemeckis had rehired the same guy, Alan Silvestri, to do Back to the Future, he said, that's not right. You shouldn't have that kind of score. This should have a big adventure orchestra score. They were making temp versions of the movie to show at test screenings while it was in editing. And so at some point, Spielberg attended a test screening that had a temp score on it, but unbeknownst to him, they had already recorded some of the real score and put it in there. And when he heard the music, he said, that, that is how the music to this movie should sound. <laughs> and Zemeckis said, that is the score. And Spielberg just, it hadn't seemed possible to him that this guy, Alan Silvestri, that he knew from Chips and Romancing the Stone, could write a score like this because... It just wasn't something he had done before. And yeah, I think there's that thrill of getting to play in this giant sandbox comes through in whatever you said that launched me into this in the first place. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're totally right. You can feel him in the sandbox and checking out all of the toys he's brought to play with there. So I read that Zemeckis's instruction to Silvestri was to go big and open the movie up because he was concerned that the movie, while it purported to be an adventure, there's only so much action in it and it's kind of contained. And he wanted Silvestri to go for the biggest perspective on this possible. So I actually think we have referenced at least the main motif of the theme from Back to the Future in a previous episode. Do you remember in the To Kill a Mockingbird episode way back when, when we talked a little bit about the Lydian scale? Yeah, I do. We talked about the augmented fourth as an important interval in that scale. Yeah, we said that this note that has a key function in the To Kill a Mockingbird melody... It also shows up in, what did we say, in E.T., which we talked about in that episode, too. It's the Maria note, you said. And I think we also singled this melody out as starting that way, and it sure does start that way. It does. That note is the note of this movie. Right. That is a particularly piquant note. It has tension is. That note is about being in tension with its context. That's considered the most tense interval in some contexts, right? Yeah, that's right, which is, you know, fascinating from a physics perspective because it's exactly half of an octave, that interval. But if you take the ratio of the frequencies of those notes, it actually winds up being an irrational number. You can't express that frequency ratio as a regular fraction the way that you can for all the other consonant intervals. Right. The augmented fourth or the diminished fifth or the tritone this interval has both a spaciousness and an intensity to it that makes it very potent it gets used whenever people want to create a sense of things being off balance and unresolved and worrying and troubled but also as we were saying then you know mystical and wondrous yeah i mean when you talk about the meaning in an interval of two notes, you're really talking about uh, some basic elements of meaning here, atoms of meaning. It's not as though it has any particular meaning, but certainly it is unresolved in a way that has been used throughout the entire history of music to motivate all kinds of expression. He puts these three notes, five, one, sharp four, and says that's the motive and then the movie follows from there very directly he is pretty rigorous about deriving you know someone can find an exception but essentially everything from that in one form or another and i think that that creative approach pays off wonderfully for the movie so that's the main thing i have to say about it then we can talk about the specifics what do you have to say about it Well, that note, I think, encapsulates the concept of uh, transformation in this melody. The, The concept of jumping from one context to another. I mean, in the case of the music, it's constantly jumping from one key to another. But I think you can draw a metaphor to something jumping from one spot in the space time continuum to another by the way that this note, like, is the fulcrum for these constant key changes. Mm-hmm. You want to have little uh, music theory Doc and Marty traveling through time on the keyboard? Go ahead, describe <laughs> it. So we hear these three notes. Like we keep saying, that third note is the notable note. And then we hear 
basically a repetition of that phrase with a few extra passing notes filling it out, but it's the it's the same contour. And it lands back on that same note, but then it slips. Da-da-dum. And now it's pointing in a new direction. And if you follow that through to the end of the melody, we landed in a different key than where we started. And then, as very often happens in this score, it goes from there and goes off into a new key. Each time it takes that tension and flips it into its resolved state, which necessitates a transmutation. And each one of those, I feel like as a tooth on a ratchet that is pulling me up into, you know, heightening stakes and overall tension. You know, like the final sequence when he's driving the car and, oh no, is Doc going to get the wire connected in time? It's just this barrage of ratchet up to the next tooth. time using those same notes to like grab onto the next key and pull the rest of the score up to it it's definitely one of those themes that is not a rounded sentence it's motivated to move in a direction yeah the theme is that a theme that you just sang and then it repeats up a fourth yeah but it went somewhere else it went somewhere else And then now he has, and this is musically clever, the B concept, which is based on the turn in the second half of it. But that B doesn't round it off either. And now he sometimes has this final phrase. That's it. I mean, he actually has to do a fair bit of sleight of hand to make a hole and credits out of it <laughs> because it doesn't uh, land. No, it's floating up and up and up. I mean, that B material in the theme, the middle bit, uh, he can do some very lovely things with that. You know, if he plays that slowly and kind of broadens it out, it becomes this very warm, emotional thing, like when Marty is saying goodbye to his parents, uh, you know, he saved the day at the dance. That's the home base emotionally in the movie, and home is an important concept in the movie. To get to that place, that's when you know you're safe, finally. Yeah, but when it's in the middle of the action, when it's churning along through this constantly up-ratcheting material, the baseline under it just goes up and up. The same phrase repeats, but the bass starts for the first repetition in one place, and it just keeps creeping up. Bum, 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 bum. So that the bass notes underneath the second repetition of the same phrase of the melody create these kind of wonky tensions and dissonances again. Oh, but I love that poignant chord. I love it too. I mean, that's not a tense, dissonant chord to me. That's like a savory, poignant chord. Did you say poignant or buoyant? Poignant, but buoyant is also good. All right, let's call it buoyant. I love that buoyant chord on the downbeat of, you know, the second repetition of that phrase because the bass is like on what note compared to that chord? Something you didn't expect. I mean, I don't know. I think of that as kind of a sweet pop chord that you hear sometimes. You know what that second phrase of the B part of this theme always reminded me of? Do you know the uh, the old Baseball Tonight music? (laughs) 
Yeah, I hear it there. It's the same progression in baseball tonight. I don't know if there's a name for these, you know, G over C type chords, but I think of that as just an very 80s kind of way of giving some sentiment to things. And I love that that sentiment is in this movie, these kind of noble but homey sounds that he gets with that B theme. And there's just a hint of kind of Copeland-style Americana in that chord too, right? Uh Uh-huh. That's another emotional element that he seamlessly integrates into this crazy mix that adds up to Back to the Future. But I want to step back and finish this picture of the musical range here. Our procedure for these shows is we watch the movie, we sit with it, and we see what bubbles up, and then we end up talking from that perspective. The longer don't, I don't sat give with, that away. Oh no, that's our secret sauce. Okay, well somehow we prepare for this, and over the course of preparing for it, I just more and more deeply felt that there's actually a technical harmonic explanation for a lot of what I think is so great about this score. It really can trace back to a technical concept that oh, I guess we'll talk about that on the podcast. So here we go. Well, this is it. This is the podcast. This is it. All right. Yeah, I think that this score is unified, not just for technical musicians, but for in your ear and in your dramatic mind by this construct that is known to jazz musicians as the diminished scale and to classical musicians as the octatonic scale. What do you think? You ready to talk about the octatonic scale for a while? Sure, sure I am. <laughs> We've done little potted versions of a lot of the basic scale concepts in music. So here's one that we've skipped over, even though this scale is in everything. It's been in pretty much every score we've talked about, but it hasn't been quite as foundational and ever present as it is in this score. So today is the day we talk about it. Octatonic, it means eight notes out of the 12 possible, which means basically that you skip every third one. So if you're thinking in terms of half steps and whole steps, you go half step, whole step, half step, whole step, half step, whole step, half step, whole step. So it's, as you can hear, a repeating symmetrical construction that because it's repeating and symmetrical, it's extremely versatile. It has no real top or bottom. It has no place that's more home based than anywhere else, which is true of the whole tone scale too. It's true of 12 tone music, all kinds of stuff we've talked about. But the nice thing about this octatonic or diminished scale is that you can find all kinds of normal harmonies inside it. You can find major chords and minor chords. You can find perfect fifths and diminished fifths. You can find all kinds of the standard elements of the basic major minor tonal music framework, except they're just in this slippery, endless relationship to each other. And so, of course, that's very useful in film scoring. And Alan Silvestri just goes to town, stays in that zone, and builds so much of the movie out of it. That the sound of the octatonic scale, I feel like, you know, having grown up with Back to the Future, is always going to sound a little Back to the Future to me, even though it's in everything. It identifies so closely with Alan Silvestri's style at this point in his career. So, for an example of this like cyclical quality that it has to it, these da 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 that can keep going endlessly because he's just stepping his way like a slinky down the set of intervals that's built into the scale. 
these chords sound like they are doing some important transforming and becoming and surprising, but it's not that it's an illusion, but they can do it forever in a loop. There's no place where they'll finally sort of hit the ground and have done what they were doing. So first of all, he just plays the octatonic scale throughout the movie, just in your face all the time. For example, here's Doc waiting for Marty at the end of the movie. Where is that kid? Let's hear some more of the octatonic scale. Damn. Damn, damn. But he also uses it structurally. Once he's established that sound space, it actually governs the progress of the drama. So here's Doc announcing that he's about to go on a journey into the future at the beginning of the movie. And we get this kind of military snare drum tattoo you know, I guess it's supposed to sound like he's about to embark on a dangerous mission, right? I mean, I always felt like the music was building up this inexorable snare energy throughout that sequence because the music knew that the Libyans were coming to get him before we did. Well, that's what's so cool about it is that it turns out to feel that way when you get to the end of it. But at the beginning of it, when Doc is standing there and saying, I am at Brown or I'm about to embark, mm -hmm. uh, I think it sounds like, you know, here go the bravest. Mm -hmm. and, uh, this is their march. Safe now. Everything's that line. Don't you lose those tapes now? But the repeating thing that's happening, it starts this snare beat with these B flats in the bass. Rump, rump. Then eventually, there's a sense that the action has moved forward. We're on to the next thought, so it goes up a minor third to C sharp. The future. Where are you going? That's right. 25 years into the future. Now we're here for a little while. Oh, and I'll get to see what the future is like. I'll get to see who wins the World Series. And now, okay, it's really going to happen. This little sentimental. Here comes the theme. Now the bass moves up another minor third to an E. Uh, look me up when you get there. Indeed, I will. Roll them. Getting ready to go. We hear the melody, which can fit against this without introducing any new harmonic elements because the entire melody can be plucked out of the octonic scale. What am I thinking of? I almost forgot to bring extra plutonium. How did I ever expect to get back? One pellet, one chip, I must be out of my mind. And now, oh, he hears someone coming, so it goes up again to a G, and then he looks and sees who's coming, and now it goes up again to a B flat. Well, wait, we started on a B flat. It's just a loop. We're oh exactly God. where we started, and yet it feels like we got there by a constant forward driving, rising energy. But as you said, there was also the sense that the music knew what was coming. And this is possible because that movement up by a third, by a third, by a third, by a third, and then you're at the same place again, it underlies most of the moves that the music makes, like drama on a merry-go-round. Anyway, I just think it's hugely beneficial to the movie as a whole that there is kind of a very distinctive heightened quality to almost every scene but it's also fixed the amount that it's heightened it's heightened to the way that the octatonic scale feels off balance always kind of falling forward sort of in orbit it's always being drawn to the next thing you can go to pretty much any scene in the movie and doc and marty are subject to that exact amount of being set off balance of being under threat yeah And it's always there. They always have the same amount to do about it. It's always exciting. He uses that for them being under threat a lot. You know, like um, when Biff and his gang are chasing Marty around the town square. 
and they're like being really violent at it. Like it is not nice. <laughs> they're trying to really run him over or something. Yeah, they're trying to kill him. Yeah. <laughs> I was taken aback. I was, you know, <laughs> I saw this as an adult this time instead of a kid being like, be careful. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, he knocks over the couple and then scrambles away and the piano is going bum, 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 bum. Right. It's scuttling around these notes picked out of the octatonic scale. And he uses that all the time. You know, when, oh no, is it going to work out? He uses that in moments of real frenzied action, like while Marty is driving the DeLorean towards the climactic, you know, electric wire. And, oh no, is he going to make it? But also in the small sort of calm before the storm, before he takes off driving and he sets the time circuits so that he can go back in time to warn Doc, blah, blah, blah. The, like, little pause material Mm -hmm. before the action kicks in, the, okay, Hey, let's worry about the time machine business. It's this like twinkling, like this swirling, swirling. Okay, ten minutes ought to do it. You can imagine, you know, clocks swirling against some sort of cartoon vortex thing. And yeah, again, it's all about this set of notes that suggest twirling. I love that little thing. I don't know why. Da, 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 da. Uh-huh. It's so basic, but there's something just right about it. I remember as a kid trying to figure out how to play that. It was just this little collection of notes, and yet it had all of this portent in it. Another nice use of that thing is the main drama of the movie is whether George McFly will be able to stand up to Biff. And he knocks out Biff, and everything's settled except... It's not because he still has to go back to the future. The reminder at the end of that sequence that not everything has been resolved. We see the sky. We see that the storm clouds are brewing and you get that little trouble motive Mm -hmm. on a celeste. Really like that moment. So yeah, I agree. He's definitely picked that scale as something that he's going to derive so much of the material of this movie out of. But I think that there are some key exceptions to that that, uh, if you'll permit me, prove the rule. Yes, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this, is that this is the context of adventure. This diminished scale sense of trouble, and then we have some answers to the trouble in those other themes that makes them all the more delicious and rewarding when we finally earn them. Yeah, like you were saying, you can find all these useful and familiar intervals in the octatonic scale if you follow that pattern you mentioned, half step, whole step, while you can get a minor third and a major third, and then you can get a diminished fifth and a perfect fifth. But the note that I just skipped over, the one in three notes, like you said, that gets left out, well, that's the regular fourth, the perfect fourth. And so that makes it all the more potent and warm and noteworthy when he kind of takes the main theme but flattens it out from the raised fourth version to instead the regular fourth and plays on the fourth relationship. He seems to do that for these moments of sincere emotion between Doc and Marty. a wonderful feeling of kind of sighing out whatever the trouble was. Yeah. The air has cleared. Da 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 da. Ah, it feels so good. And then he has the other horns go ah. <laughs> yes, we hear this around Marty trying to warn Doc that they're going to kill him in the future and Doc won't let him. The scene where we see Marty writing the letter, we hear that regular fourth. And then again, when he finally gets back to the future and Doc has been shot, but he has a bulletproof vest, we hear the same not raised forth to pay off that material. 
alive. Right. And at the very end of the movie, when all is well, yeah, that's right. gets his truck. Gets the floor by floor. He gets the truck he always wanted. Exactly. He has this trick up his sleeve that he saves for moments of ride, real Mr. resolution and emotional payoff. Yes. Oh, Which makes so it all the more sore. funny because the next thing that we hear yeah. after this more relaxed, yeah, warm, fourth-based thing for the 4x4, four four, maybe is that a coincidence for the 4x4? Four because four? okay? it's a fourth. Because it's a fourth, definitely is a coincidence. Right? But the next thing that happens is that Doc shows back up from 2015, oh, yeah. and now we hear the same kooky, kooky cartoon energy stuff that we've heard from him in the past and it's not only back to this octatonic but it's like extra kookified with dissonant notes and weird instruments and right he's wearing his loud outfit from the future and yes the zaniness returns at the end yeah you've got to come back with me where back to the future yeah so that's one answer to it but now to go back to the main theme in a context where that tritone Da da da. A lot of the time means, uh oh, the fates are not going to be friendly to you and the timeline might be here to kill you. In the heroic theme, the main theme from Back to the Future, it's like that note finds a clean way out. Yeah. The main theme represents an escape route from octatonicism. That's the transformation that I was talking about. Da da da. Turns out just to be the 5 5 tone to five. What could be more satisfying than five? Da 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 da. Oh, whew. It's such a clear, audible sound of exactly what it is in the story. You're surrounded by complications and you scoot right through them because things are going to work out. I feel like it has a real link to like scooting to a different spot on the timeline. All right. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of scooting in this movie. I mean, it's a scooting based plot. As long as we can agree on scooting. Andy, you know, I've been in Doc's house. You've been in his fancy house? His 1955 house? Yeah. Do you know what house that is? Uh, some fancy house. I think I probably looked it up once. Where is it? That house is what's called the Gamble House. It's here in Pasadena, the exterior anyway. And it's like an important landmark in the California arts and crafts architecture movement. It's designed by Green and Green, these famous uh, architectural designers and woodworkers. It's like a historical landmark. And you can take a tour inside that house. And my God, Andy, the joinery in that house. Ugh. Oh, it's clearly a beautiful house. You can tell even when you see it for just a second in the movie. Yeah. All the more sad when you find out that Doc has spent the entire family fortune and is now sleeping in a little garage in 1985. Is that not what we see? In fact, don't we see a clipping in that opening pan that says that his family house was destroyed? Oh, yeah, that's right. Why would he put that clip on the bulletin board? That seems like it would be depressing. Yeah, well, Doc's emotional life is <laughs> a little different from yours or mine. Do you know what it says on Doc's truck? I don't remember. It says... Uh, Professor Emmett Brown, 24-hour scientific services. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, that's his life. <laughs> that must be how they met, right? Marty had need for some scientific <laughs> Ma yeah, services. Yeah, Marty called up. Uh, you know, he looked in the yellow pages and said, what? where can I get some scientific services? I'm making up a story in my head right now. Maybe that amp exists because Marty requested it. Maybe Marty was like, I want to be too darn loud, uh, and I need to find the mad scientist in town to, uh, to make it possible. 
I mean, John Mulaney has a funny stand-up bit about it. They never explain how these two people are friends in the first place. I figured, you know, Doc just, like, hired him to be his assistant. Just a local kid. I don't think Marty's his assistant, but... Uh... You don't? I mean, I guess they're modeled on Sherman and Mr. Peabody, right? Yeah, they are, which is why the farm that he first jumps into in 1955 is called the Peabody Farm. I had never made that connection, but that makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah. In fact, the name of the kid who thinks that he's a space alien who's mutating, his name is Sherman Peabody. And so Mr. Peabody always said that Sherman was his boy, the way that humans have pet dogs. So Marty is his pet, essentially, right? Okay, but he's his assistant. You know, he calls him up and says, you know, here, get my video camera. All right, so maybe it's an after-school job. Yeah, that's what I think. It's an after-school job. All right. Well, that's pretty normal. (laughs) Another moment that I really admire Sylvester's instinct to play through, unlike so much Mickey Mousing that goes on, when Marty is getting in the car as the final scene is about to take off, I like how he plays through this sequence with similar kind of military Mm -hmm. steady march music. Doc explains the plan. Doc maps out everything that's going to happen. And then the planning shifts into them bidding each other farewell, and this is emotional, and we've still got the noble horn call version of the theme going underneath it. Well, I guess that's everything. Thanks. Thank you. And then Marty's misgivings about how he might be sentencing Doc to his death if he doesn't force him to read the letter and the worries and all of that. I hope so. And it's all scored with the same steady forward motion and it gives such a great sense of moment to all of this that it's all linked together and that takes real scoring insight to realize that you can start a beat here and keep it going all the way to there and instead of making everything feel samey it'll make everything feel lifted up yeah and then when doc gets mad at him for trying to tell him about the future then the rhythm kind of does this weird crank into what sounds like a faster tempo it's not actually a faster tempo it's just he's assigning the beats to a different grouping of eighth notes or something but i think that's a very canny spotting move as well Yeah, and this is all this kind of ominous but steady, and then he unleashes this finale by suddenly cartoon chaos breaks out and the steady beat gets interrupted, which is exactly the energy of that. It should be pointed out how meticulously you have to plan out this cartoon chaos. I mean, if you look in the score, he's changing time signatures nearly every measure. It's constantly jumping back and forth between like 5-4 and 3-8. And he's doing that to make sure that just the right number of eighth notes go by until the next thing happens. It's just dogged in its adherence to where it has to get to. 
I mean, he's doing that both for the practical effect that a certain amount of time is going to pass until the next sync point. And what is it? It's 17 eighth notes worth of time. Okay, so then I'm going to divvy up these 17 eighth notes. However, I need to divvy them up so that I land on a thing when I need to land on a thing. But in addition to, you know, the practical necessities of matching music against the timing of an edited sequence, that's another element of what gives the music intrinsically this manic quality. Because there's no perceptible grid that you can follow. It's constantly jumping around. Every beat sort of feels equivalently strong or weak as the next. It's this very regimented miasma. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think that when it's working at its best, it's because the editor has an implicitly musical sensibility in what they've assembled. Mm -hmm. And there is usually a kind of a meaning to it that's only slightly extra musical like a moment when you have to catch your breath or sure. you just have to like suck in air for a little longer than the beat and I think that in this finale Silvestri is reading the heartbeat intentions of the editing mm-hmm. perfectly absolutely understands that some of these edits are easy to take they're just telling the story and other ones are interrupting the flow yeah that's really nicely said that's the magic that can happen when both a good editor and a good composer independently come to the same material the editor is laying out the information that the audience is going to take in and figuring out how long the audience needs to understand what they're looking at and then when you want them to be surprised by seeing something else and when you want them to have naturally expected to see something else. You know, in a way, it's those exact same decisions that a composer has to make. The composer is deciding, is this the progression of something that's been set in motion or is it the progression of something that's been set in motion being interrupted and a new motion being set into place? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's gasps and there's breaths that they both feel. And when they really line up and they're both describing the same action, It's not an action that really exists. It's this manufactured dreamline of shots that were taken who knows when and composited between different people pretending to be the same person and different cars pretending to be the same cars. But they're accessing this unified vision and they just both understand how it's to be experienced. And it's magical when they line up that well. And yeah, I think this finale, this climax clock tower scene is a masterwork. Let's just highlight this example of magic right at the absolute climax of the movie. He plays the theme and then he interrupts it for a non-metrical amount of time twice with swirling. Yeah, exactly right. It's such a wonderful move. And the magical interaction with the editing, if you watch it carefully, is still magic because these are not on obvious cuts. Right. It's just a sense of when the audience is holding their breath and when the audience is breathing. Da 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 Yeah. It's amazing. That whirly time 
like all of a sudden it's an accordion bellow between the rigid pieces on either side of it. It just, it doesn't matter. You can stretch it. It's just a... Yeah, it's silly putty. It's compressible. Yeah, and I mean, if you look at it in the score, the mechanics behind getting that to happen and having it sound so plastic are incredibly difficult because, you know, we're in four... And then this little swirly bit, he's dropping a beat willy-nilly. Two beats in this one spot, and then in the second time, there's one beat missing. If you go back to the skateboard chase, that's even crazier. He drops a single eighth note in order to line up and come out again in the same spot. the same compression. Yeah, you're in metrical heroic time right? and dizzy falling off your skateboard ametrical time, even though it's actually just complicated, different metered time. Right. The thing about writing plastic mush is that you still have to write it out metrically to get, you know, 80 people to play it at the same time. Maybe worth noting that after they recorded, I guess, the whole score, what I read is that Spielberg said he thought that the theme was so effective that he wanted to hear a little more of it. And he paid for them to do another session or maybe another set of sessions i don't know they went back to the studio and recorded revised versions of lots of these cues and if you get the expanded soundtrack you can hear the original and the revised version and a lot of what it ends up being is just polish of these very precise syncs so that it exactly matched exactly i do think that that rare luxury of getting to even finer tune the synchrony to the editing Mm -hmm. pays off in the score especially keeping in mind you know they weren't using computers for this stuff at this point they're still using these kind of old-fashioned analog methods they have to conduct it in time they have to match physical frames of film amazing yeah and these players whether or not it's the first or second time they're essentially sight reading at every one of these sessions. They sit down with whatever is crazy in front of them and they just do it right the first time. Yeah, it's true. It's incredible. I want to highlight what I think is another wonderful sort of spotting decision moment that is on the other side of the spectrum from this fantastic energy climax. It's the sort of emotional climax. Mm -hmm. When Crispin Glover finally kisses Leah Thompson on the dance floor. Oh, yeah. He has such a good instinct Yeah, when to score the breath and when to get out of the way of the breath. So the band is playing Earth Angel, but overlaid on top of that is this creepy music with creepy dissonant string creepily noises and a driving timpani rhythm because the guy has cut in on them dancing and the jerk is dancing with Lorraine instead, which I never understood. What are the rules of cutting in why can you do that how is that okay he's a jerk you, you correctly identified yeah, right. <laughs> the reason that there's creepy music is because marty is disappearing before his own eyes he's looking through his hand yes indeed and then there's a dissonant trumpet chord that swells and that climax it stops it gets out of the way it doesn't play through this happening instead it makes a space for george to come back in and say excuse me so like his moment of action his moment of decisiveness gets to be in the clear gets to have a spotlight around it and then there's some triumphant music as he moves in as he steps forward towards her to kiss her But then the music again leaves a hole for the key thing to happen. And then it swoops back in to be Marty standing back up and strumming the guitar again. 
just in this little sequence, it's just so keenly observed. Let this moment happen and then put some extra momentum as we get from this moment to this moment. But then when we get to this moment, we want this moment to feel like it's expanding. And uh, yeah, it's beautifully spotted and cared for. And the experience is shepherded along carefully by the music. I would also want to say that each of these cues, each of these little musical additions is done with taste, which is always a funny word to use here. But I feel like in contemporary movies, you see this kind of micromanagement of your emotions a lot, but it's done with a hammer. They just cut and paste some loud noise that does what they want, mm -hmm. you know. And here, Silvestri has a sense of taste that comes through in each of these. The real climax of this little sequence you just mapped out where he beefs up Earth Angel to show that it has become victorious. This is what I wanted to get to, too. I love this. Go ahead. The kiss has happened and Marty is brought back to life. And now the orchestra that had been helping us get to this moment, all of a sudden it's part of the band. Now there's a string section on this tune. There's not a string section in Marvin Berry and the Starlighters band. They wish. They wish because it sounds like this now. There's this, you know, high Motown string line on top of the song at this point, which just kind of emerged organically out of the scoring texture and now is merging with the song. In fact, like on the soundtrack, you can hear just the string overlay by itself. It's kind of fun to hear it on its own. And I just want to be saying that Silvestri with his uh, chips chops or wherever he got this skill from, <laughs> he does it really well. And yeah. this is a thing that gets asked for. Can you have the orchestral score mate with the source music and give it breadth, give it wings? It is really hard to do it in a way that lands as well as this does, where it is not tacky. Mm -hmm. It's comic that the orchestra is doing this, but it doesn't make a joke of the emotion you're supposed to care about. What finesse it takes to have it be balanced that way. Yeah, and because he's done it with such finesse and he's sold it as being emotionally real, he then gets to do this payoff at the end of the song. The band on stage finishes playing, but the orchestra has one last little thought to add, which is this. Aha, uh -huh, it's the main theme of the movie, hidden in there, hidden in these Motown-style strings. Elegantly. He's not shaking it at you. Right. It feels so good. It feels like the existing song, the score, the dramatic arc, all of them got to the end satisfyingly at the same time. Like a lot of the scores that we talk about that we get excited about, I think that this is working at that level of understanding the deepest drives that make the movie gratifying for an audience. Ultimately, the Ur story here is that Marty's family is you know maybe his dad is lame and his mom drinks too much but basically his family is good and it's good that he exists and it's good that his life is the way it is and it's good that he lives where he is then he goes on this journey that with weird edible inversions you know threatens the normal order and then the cosmos kind of reasserts that like no yeah it's good that your life is like this and you should go home and you should have a truck <laughs> and the music is it's sort of magical fairy tale world in which things can be turned on their heads and possibly vanish. And then there's some heroism and then we come back to that home base feeling in the tender, that fourths music that we heard. And that's it. 
the music doesn't take us to other places and that keeps us in touch with the journey for the music to be so constrained. I, I think I used that word before, but there's not that many different places that it goes. There's a few boldly outlined, very clear musical places that it goes, and then it repeats them strategically and smartly throughout. And so we always know where we are and we know how it felt. You know, that's the real sign of the success of a score is that it makes the movie What's a good adjective? It's a good adjective. Um, good? Good. Good will do. John, when Marty picks up the phone, when Doc calls him in the middle of the night, he didn't fall asleep, did you? Oh, no, 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 here I come at 1 a.m. We see on his nightstand that he has two half-eaten caramellos. <laughs> Why did he start the second one? <laughs> I mean... Obviously, the answer is that that is a caramello that has intruded on this timeline from an alternative timeline. <laughs> I see. It's the first sign that something has gone terribly wrong. All right, Andy. This has been a fun ride. This has been a fun moment in time. Let's see what moment in time the bucket has picked out for us to jump to next time. All right. Um, spinning balls, uh, reaching in, and it is showing me that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, the bucket says we will be doing an episode on yeah, yeah, L'Assassinat du Duc de Guise, 1908, with score by Camille Saint-Saëns. Uh, really? One of the first films with an original film score. Uh, it's a 15-minute movie, so we'll just come up with 80 minutes worth of stuff to say about that. Uh, that was in the bucket? Yeah, it's a very historically important uh, score about the assassination of the Duke of Guise. One of the most significant uh, composers ever to write a film score. Yeah, Sanson's great. Um, I didn't... All right, if it's what the bucket says, I guess. All right, if you like the show, like and subscribe. Tweet at us on Twitter. Wait, wait, stop! You can't! Wait, who's this? Guys, stop! Andy! What? Andy, John! It's us! Yes, it's us! We're you! From the future! What are you talking about? What happens to us in the future? What, do we become jerks or something? No, 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 you and John turn out fine. <laughs> it's your episode! Something has to be done about your next episode. What? But we just finished that episode. Wait, I'm going to come over here in the left side of the stereo with you, John. Get your elbow out of there. You can't do that next episode unless us not do Duke de Guise. That next episode sets in motion a chain reaction that ruins your lives forever. It at least ruins the podcast. If you didn't do that next episode, then the man in the Rolls Royce would never have pressed charges. <laughs> and, and so forth. Also, it was really boring. Nobody's seen or heard of that movie. I saw it. I watched it on YouTube. <laughs> Is it interesting? No, it's not interesting. But, you know, it's interesting to think about scoring at that stage and what Sansas thought about it. But it's not an 80-minute episode. <laughs> it was a terrible episode. And also, you guys never talked about the sequels like you said you were going to, sort of. In the intro of this episode, you said you would mention the sequels, and not doing so created a paradox. Gosh, you're right. I mean, I'm right. We do have to talk about the other movies. Okay, good. Wait a minute. Whoa, look at that. Now that we're doing what they said, they're disappearing. Oh, well, that makes sense. That's how time travel works sometimes. Whoa, heavy. There's that word again. <laughs> Their reality no longer exists. Right. Should I feel bad about that? Uh, probably not, no. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. They made a sacrifice for the good of all. For the good of the timeline. Actually, I've always... One of the things in these movies that strikes me as the strangest is when Doc says that if you encounter your future self, there might be a paradox that could destroy the universe. And then he says, or it could just be localized to our galaxy. That's the craziest concept in the whole thing to me. Like, <laughs> what would be at the edge? <laughs> How would that work? John, you like to explain Einsteinian concepts to me. How could it possibly be localized? 
Oh, because, you know, time is a, a blanket. Time is a blanket? I think I heard that somewhere. Okay. Yeah, what what do you think of the sequels, John? I think that the first half of part two is kind of tough to watch, and then the second half is fun, and then that part three is mostly pretty fun. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. I used to just not watch part two. I mean, I watched it, you know, the first time, and then I was like, ah, I don't want to watch that again. But when I've watched it recently, I've thought, this is a pretty interesting movie, and pretty wild that they took all of these risks, even if they add up to uh, less happy experience overall i agree you know there's a lot of convoluted business that they have to put into motion it's not as clean in exposition as it is in the first movie right i mean that's the big risk is it's completely ingrown self-devouring idea for what a sequel could be that i don't think really had ever been done before where they put themselves in the first movie they reenact the first movie the whole thing is a deliberate self-reference and of course that's more convoluted it's like it's throwing in your face how convoluted it is gosh who would ever want to do something like that are you referring to us i don't know That concept, that high, weird concept for a sequel does pose kind of an unusual problem for the composer because what is the emotional world of returning to a previous movie? (laughs) Probably got to be the music from the previous movie, right? (laughs) Right. And pretty much that's what this score is, right? I think so. But it struck me that it does somewhat change the meanings of the things that it reuses by reusing them so thoroughly. Huh. It felt to me like in the second movie, we hear, for example, da-da-da-da-da-da, as a signal, as a piece of the Back to the Future vocabulary. He wants you to kind of recognize that the Back to the Future universe is self-involved and limited and based on the repetition of a few motifs over and over. I think in retrospect, we see the first movie as part of that, that Back to the Future is this little dollhouse universe where certain kinds of stuff get people keep driving into manure. That's just a thing that happens in Back to the Future over and over. <laughs> and, you know, Biff knocks on George's head and says, hello, McFly, and I think all three movies, right? Yeah, everything happens in all three movies. Essentially, right. they do all of the same routines in each of the movies, and that's yeah. part of the concept. And I think in the second score, Silvestri is kind of taking his first score and turning it into a construction set Hmm. that you could make any number of Back to the Future scores out of in the way that TV scores often work, where they've got sort of a library of cues. He kind of turns Back to the Future, the score, into a library score, and that makes the movie feel like it's part of a library score-type universe like a TV show in a way that the first one didn't. What do you think of that? I think that's right. I think that would probably be true of any sequel that, you know, repeated the same material because the fact of its repetition is now a new piece of information that you experience. True. I think it's particularly intense in this movie because of what we said about how the movie works. Yeah. A thing I noticed about the second score, I feel like he, even more strikingly in this, swerves in and out of the big heroic theme statements in the action cues, like the action sequence in the first half of the movie around the mall. Just on a dime, in the middle of action stuff, he jumps into a bar or two of the heroic B section of the melody. Just shows up very slavishly on like beauty shots of the car driving or a small turn to the positive in the action stream. I 
I think he feels a real obligation to be marking, signposting, as I say. Yeah. We had a conversation a long time ago on this show about the power and the function of music and movies to generalize right. what you're seeing. And I think we were talking about generalizing to universal human experiences. But another sense of generalizing is that you generalize any specific event within a franchise as representing the overall brand value of that franchise. Yeah. You know, if every time you see the car, you hear a certain music, it starts to really solidify the general experience that this franchise offers. I think Silvestri is really good at that here, and that still comes down to a kind of parsing. Like, you have to understand the screenplay really well to be able to say, this is going to be a QA-type moment, and this is going to be a QC-type moment so well mm -hmm. that it all congeals into this hard, you know, plastic product <laughs> that can be purchased. Yeah, and don't forget that all of it is still shrink-wrapped with this incredible, nimble orchestral texture that has to surround and coat everything. And, you know, I think you're aware of this, that in recent years, they have started doing these live-to-picture orchestra performances of the entire score to a movie with the projection going, and they have adapted Back to the Future for this kind of presentation. But as we were saying, there's not music for 20 minutes of it, and it overall is a short score. So Alan Silvestri went back and filled out some of the gaps, wrote new cues for the beginning. You know, we talked about how we had cheated in our intro and played end titles music instead of main titles music, because there is no main titles music. It's just clocks ticking. Right. I think in the concert performance version, I think he has adapted something like the end titles to play over the clock ticking main titles. Well, I think what he plays is what's used as the opening of the second movie, which is the homey diatonic thing that we talked about. The home bass music. That's interesting to think about because in 1985, I don't think that would have been remotely an appropriate first cue for Back to the Future. You wouldn't know what you were feeling or why or what it sure. meant. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, after the sequels, oh yeah, we get it. Now it's a franchise, now it's a brand, so yeah, now we need the brand music. You know, like all that sweet music for looking at clocks that turn into a, you know, like a dog food machine, it would have been disorienting. Anyway, getting back to the part two score, to be fair to Silvestri, it's not all cut and paste. He does, in fact, come up with a little bit of new material, which is nicely right in the same technical concept as the original score, which is for the scary Biff world, the bad 1985. He writes this, I think, deliberately old-fashioned, kind of melodramatic, dark Hollywood sound kind of music. When Marty is stumbling through the ruined streets of decrepit Hill Valley, you hear this highly melodramatic stuff, which is still chords a tritone apart, which is the thing he's been doing all along. That's what those magic chords are. But he's turned it into something that sounds not exactly like Max Steiner or Dmitry Tiomkin or someone like that, but it evokes that. I think because the sequence is supposed to evoke the bad alternate world in It's a Wonderful Life. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Which is a you know, clever little move to pull there. He did go and write some really new material for part three. Yeah, part three is a whole different animal. Yeah, it's a Western all of a sudden. So he's, I think, rightly decided that he had to add to the bag of tricks. The brand needed a spin off, an expansion. 
it does seem like a spin-off. It has that quality and the score has that quality. Yeah. He establishes that right at the beginning before they've gone back to the Old West when they're just sleeping in Doc's living room and the credits are rolling and it's panning over them. Alan Silvestri says, hey, listen to this. I wrote some new music. What's this music for? Who knows? Hard to say. Something sweet. Something sweet is coming. This theme. which becomes much later the theme for the fact that this is also a love story. Remember you said that this movie doesn't actually have a love story even though the theme is the power of love? This movie has a love story in it, and he scores that love story like it's not part of the established Back to the Future franchise brand. He just scores it straight. There's scene after scene where he has real emotion support music. Damn it. Anna, I want you to know that I care about you deeply. But I realize that I don't belong here, and I have to go back where I came from. And where might that be? I can't tell you. Well, wherever you go and take me with you. It's just a whole new Alan Silvestri score for this whole new story, and it really feels like we've gone off on a spin-off that is only adjacent to Back to the Future. And I think in this music, we can hear a side of Alan Silvestri, which is part of what I think is quintessentially Silvestri, that doesn't show up as much in the rest of the Back to the Future material. But I think one of his big strengths and one of his customary go-to moves is to somehow spin out these melodies that seem so simple and obvious that how, how could they not have been taken already? But he manages to get melodies, and I'm thinking of things like, you know, Forrest Gump, these, like, toy music box... Yeah, nursery rhyme kind of... Nursery rhyme simple melodies. How does he have so many of those? It's such a quick plug into those childlike sentimental feelings, and he has a knack for it, and it slides in in this movie. This is a very sweet, kind of good-natured movie that is, I think, deliberately meant to be a breath of fresh air after the darkness of the previous one. Mm -hmm. But the air in this movie is so fresh that sometimes, to me anyway, it does feel a little... Saccharine? Inessential. Like, Uh they didn't have to make this, and I don't have to watch it. It's nice. And I do think some of that comes down to Silvestri not having actually shown why this was the necessary next step in the Back to the Future world. It's just like, there's a thousand things you could do with these characters, and if you just scored each of those things in turn, then uh, they're arbitrary. I don't know. I mean, does it strike you that way, or do you feel like this is the necessary last stage of Doc and Marty's epic journey? I mean, just, do you like this movie? (laughs) I do like the movie. I think, you know, it's impossible for it to not feel a little more contrived and a little more formulaic. I mean, it's set out to be formulaic, like you said. All the things that happen in each movie happen in all the movies. You know, there's a little bit of diminishing returns because of that. But then again, that sort of explains why they had to take such a big swing and, like, make a totally different kind of movie. And I think it mostly works. Yeah, It mostly works, but if the value of a really good score, if what we were excited about in the original Back to the Future is that it ties everything together and says everything here is kind of the same substance, it's all unified and necessary. And then in this movie, like, it it doesn't really do that as much, and so it elicits a shrug. That's the reason that I might get excited about an original Back to the Future as a score, because that's the alternative 
It's not like I mean, you make a bad movie, but you might make a movie that doesn't have that special, vague, but important sense of like, yeah, yeah, that had to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. This is a serviceable and fun sequel, but sequels are hard. You know, it's a paradox that you have to solve to make a sequel because you have to give people something new, but you also have to kind of convince them that they're still watching the original movie that they liked before. And these two sequels as a group sort of set out to do literally that is to make a new movie, but also make sure the audience knows that they're still watching the same movie because for a while they actually are still watching the same movie. This is like the concept of a sequel writ in time travel. And I've heard Galen Zemeckis talk about exactly that, that when they were asked to do a sequel, they were like, sequels, give me a break. That's the worst possible thing you could have to do. (laughs) And then the two movies do represent the two different approaches to sequels. One is... Well, let's make it be all about the first movie. And the other one is, well, let's just go make a different kind of movie with these people. Yeah, so, you know, sequel's never going to be, or there's a few exceptions, I guess. But, you know, I, I'm a Godfather part one man. I know a lot of people like two better, but I'll stick to one. Sequels, you know, as a whole are hard to be as artistically rewarding and exciting as their originals. But, you know... So what? Well, I think The Godfather Part Two is a great example of a sequel score, and I think we talked about this a little on the- Oh, sure it is. Don't get me wrong. I still think it's great, and maybe- you should. No, 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 no. It's fine. I hear you. Godfather 2 is huge and sprawling, and some people feel obligated to say that makes it better, but Godfather 1 is more more uh, focused. Yeah. But in that score, Rota's basically speaking within the same vocabulary and adding depth to some things and adding new emphasis to some things, but there's a sense of it being a continuation and a deepening. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm saying that Silvestri's number two score is that, but Back to the Future Part 2 is so uniquely constrained to its own predecessor that he doesn't have a lot of room to really stretch out and do anything different. And then in three, I'm aware that it doesn't do that interesting sequel thing that you can do where you build up a vocabulary. Mm. It uh, just writes some new music. Although I did see Silvestri saying that in retrospect, he sees that the big Western theme, he wasn't really intending to tie it into the Back to the Future original theme, but if you look at it, it kind of has some of the same contour and the same overall, you know, it, it modulates up a fourth in the same place in the phrases, so you could see it sort of as turning the Back to the Future theme into a Western theme. But I don't think that's what it was. No, I don't buy that. But we should definitely talk more about this theme. Yeah. I think what he's done is actually do his best to evoke the Western brand, if you will, that I think we were talking about back in the Magnificent Seven episode. The theme that Elmer Bernstein wrote for that movie was just a distillation of the archetypical concept of Western. The tune that he wrote for Back to the Future Part 3 seems like an overt homage to that. Oh, definitely. In fact, I think he wrote the tune... You only hear a couple times in the movie, but you notably hear it at the very end of part two when there is a trailer, essentially, for part three. Right. He apparently wrote the theme to score that trailer thing before he had begun to think about how to score the actual movie. And so its function there is just to say, we made a Western. What do you think of that? (laughs) And that's what the theme means. (laughs) It sure does mean that. Maybe we should talk about why it means that, because it sure does sound westerny. Oh, yeah, this is drawing on exactly that tradition. That's the whole point of it. Yeah, by that tradition, you're referring to the American orchestral western sound, which, as we talked about in the Magnificent Seven episode, owes 
pretty much everything to Aaron Copeland. Yeah, that's right. Though I don't think that Silvestri was necessarily thinking of Aaron Copeland here, because I think he was thinking of Western movies themselves. I mean, he just wants us to remind you of old Westerns. That's why all of those character actors from actual old Westerns are hanging out in the bar. It's all a Hollywood self-reference going on in this movie. Yeah, speaking of self-reference, didn't we have this conversation kind of in our very first episode when we talked about how Alfred Newman's score for How the West Was Won was also a distillation of this Copeland sound. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it sounds pretty much just like the theme from How the West Was Won. I wouldn't be surprised if that was his main model for writing this theme. You know, it's kind of a shame that we didn't make that connection back in that first episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what an oversight that we didn't do. Uh, (laughs) That has not happened in our timeline. What a shame. Yeah, well, what if we took this time machine that our future selves left here and we went back to our first episode and put that in there? Oh, to make it like it had always been there and no one would be the wiser. We're certainly not the wiser. Let's do it. All right, let me fire this thing up here. All right. And we're moving along. Are we? There goes the beginning of this episode. Now we're in the previous episode, the North by Northwest episode. There it goes. This is amazing. Gosh, you know, looking back over all of these episodes that are stretched out in front of us, I bet we've sort of really said a lot of the same stuff over and over. Yeah, but if you can't help but repeat it. You can't help but repeat it. Because that was his style. Wait, uh, why did we stop here? Okay, hold on. Let me just uh, whack this thing a little here. All right, all right, here we go. All right, now we're moving faster. The special effects I'm witnessing right now, in my reality, are amazing. Oh, sure. Amazing. What a ride. All right, now we're getting close to the beginning. Let's start slowing it down. All right, here we go. I think this is the, uh, gosh, the On Golden Pond episode. Boy. Listen to my voice. What happened to me? Why are you making me listen to these? This was pretty rough at the beginning. It was super rough at the beginning. All right, one more whack here should do it. Okay, here we go. Right, I think we're getting close to the spot where, where we should say. I knew the title, and I knew that it was one of the famous themes, and I thought, when I Okay, it, here we are. Now's it, our chance. Go ahead. All right. Uh, hey, John, when I first heard this, How the West Was One theme, and the first thing that it snapped to mind was, oh, now I get what Alan Silvestri was imitating for Back to the Future Part 3. It was immediately this. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. Okay, phew, we did it. Now it'll seem like all along there was always a weird reference to Back to the Future Part 3 in our first episode for some reason. Prescient. It it seems very important that we set this timeline right. I'm sure the listeners wholeheartedly agree. And now it's finally time for us to really pick the movie for next time. Right, John? Actually, Andy, I uh, had an idea. Do you remember back in the episode we did after we finished with the AFI list, we said that, you know, we could do some other types of episodes, maybe episodes where we discussed some grouping of movies instead of picking a single movie. I do remember that. And I was thinking of that when I was going through our list recently and thinking, not all of these movies justify 80 minutes of talk. So maybe we could find a way to bundle some of them together. Yeah, well, apparently we uh, have some kind of uh, time machine here. It seems. Yeah, maybe that would be useful. Right. What if instead of using the regular bucket to randomize what movie we're getting, we uh, we just randomize a year with this time machine? Hey, that sounds great. It sounds like a plan we made. So why don't <laughs> we now randomly pick a year, just like the DeLorean, between 1955 and 2015... And then that year will be the name of our next episode. And just like when we were picking out of the bucket, this is a surprise to us, genuinely. We don't know what year is going to be assigned to us. 
All right, here we go. Here's the sound of a time travel lottery. Mm. And I'm picking a number, and it's telling us that we're traveling to the year... 1995. Huh. Look at it out there. Yeah, different time. Ross has a monkey. 1995. I was alive then. I'll avoid running into my past self, though, while we're here. John, should we tell the viewers what some movies from 1995 are that we're looking at now, or should we leave the whole thing to be a surprise when they play the episode? Maybe we should do that, especially since we don't have any viewers. Well, listeners, too. Because, you know, are we going to do the Oscar-nominated movies? Yeah, maybe, probably. At least some of them. Maybe, probably. Let's have a freewheeling conversation about a bunch of, you know... A fistful of movies. A handful of movies. And we'll figure it out as we go which movies those are. And you'll just have to wait and see which ones we decide to talk about. That sounds like fun. And, uh, you know, don't worry. This is just an idea for a different way we can make an episode. We're still going to go back and make episodes the usual way. Yeah, just trying something new. We'll see how it goes. Okay. All right, wish us luck. Stick around. If you like the show, uh, review it and say so. That's great for us. If you want to talk to us, the Twitter account is at Scoresettlers. Okay, Andy. I feel a little trepidatious, but uh, this is going to be fun. Yeah, everyone. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> okay. See you next time, Andy. Bye. Bye.